Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Welcome, everyone, uh, to our Zoom webinar on a uh, new report we're releasing today on countering Iran in the gray zone, uh, lessons for the United States from Israel's campaign in Syria. Um, what we'll do is we'll begin with a presentation from myself, uh, from Nicholas Harris at the Institute for the Study of War and a longtime colleague of ours previously at CNAS, uh, and Kaylee Thomas, uh, my colleague at CNAS, uh, on this report. Um, just a couple of ground rules. Uh, the event will be on the record. Um, at the end of the presentation, uh, we'll be taking questions through the Q&A function, uh, which is available on the webcast at the bottom of your screen. Um, we're only gonna accept questions through uh, writing, through the Q&A button, and then we'll field them, consolidate, and, and, and answer as many as we can. Um, so feel free to submit those questions. Um, throughout the presentation, but understand this is gonna be on the record. We're gonna take this video and post it online. We're also gonna post it as a webcast. So if you uh, ask a question, uh, we may identify you by name as the person asking the question. So just understand it's all an on the record discussion. Um, so um, I think that is sort of it on the, on the sort of ground rules and logistical front. Kaylee, am I, am I missing anything or anything else we should warn our uh, our, our viewers about or did I, did I catch it all? I think you caught it all, Alon. Great, all right, thank you. Well, in that case, um, let's move on and uh, start talking about what we're gonna talk about today. Um, so basically, uh, over a year ago, a uh, number of us were in Israel and received a briefing uh, from the IDF uh, about um, you know, the campaign that they've been conducting in Syria over the last few years, what they call the campaign between the wars. And I think we can put the slides up, by the way, um, at this point. Um, you know, the campaign between the wars, or in Hebrew, Mabam. Uh, and we were blown away uh, by the extent of the campaign itself. We're talking about uh, multiple hundreds of strikes uh, on Iranian targets inside of Syria. And frankly, if you told me or you told most analysts uh, that uh, Israel is going to do something like this, hit hundreds of targets inside of uh, Iranian targets inside of Syria, uh, I would have told you, yeah, and there's going to be a big war afterwards. Um, and I think most analysts would have said that, but there hasn't been. Uh, and we thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and we thought to ask ourselves, what have the Israelis done? Why hasn't it caused a conflict? Has it been effective at countering uh, Iran's operations inside Syria, and most importantly for the United States, are there things we can we can learn in terms of how we deal with Iran sort of in the gray zone um, based on the Israeli experience? Um, you know, and to be honest, there is a there's a track record of the United States learning from Israel on, on these types of operations, most notably, uh, you know, after the 1973 war, after the Yom Kippur War, uh, the U.S. studied uh, Israeli tank warfare and its conflict with uh, the, a number of the Arab states who were mostly supported by the Soviet Union to understand how it would conduct potential warfare with the Soviet Union. Um, and so in the same way, we thought that there are lessons out of what Israel has done um, you know, for how we deal with Iran in the gray zone and also how we deal potentially with Russia, China, other gray zone conflicts uh, writ large. Um, I do wanna say one thing before we start and here I'm just speaking for myself, but you know, what this is not is, you know, an endorsement of escalating conflict with Iran. Um, you know, especially, uh, you know, this research started before the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, what I would really personally myself like to see today is de-escalation. I would much rather see at this moment um, the U.S. relaxing some sanctions so that um, Iran, you know, has what it needs in terms of medical equipment and supplies to fight this virus. I'd like to see Iranian proxies and surrogates in Iraq, not attacking American forces and refraining from conflict. Um, you know, but, you know, the study is still important despite the moment that we are in, both in terms of how we might conduct these operations in the future, and more importantly, if we are going to be in this type of cycle, how we can be smart about it um, and do it in a way that actually achieves American objectives while avoiding escalation, which is what the Israelis seem to have been able to do. 
Um, so with that, um, why don't I turn to the next slide and just quickly tell you what we're going to do. Basically, what we're going to do now um, for the next 20 minutes or half an hour is uh, Nick will start by walking us through the Israeli campaign um, and the history there and what, what, what they've done. Uh, and then Kaylee and I um, will go through and uh, brief you on what we thought were some of the key lessons from the campaign. And after that, we'll, we'll turn uh, to Q&A. I think we'll start actually Q&A with a comment from um, Sarit Zahavi, who is the director of uh, the Alma Research and Education Center, which is a think tank based in northern Israel uh, that focuses on these issues and was a partner of ours and, and very helpful in, in some of the research that we did. Um, and so, um, and after that, we'll turn to broader Q&A from, from the audience. So uh, with that, uh, let me turn it over to Nick. Thank you very much, Elon, and thank you everyone for joining us today for this important and timely discussion. I'm going to walk the group through sort of the history of Israel's campaign between the wars, or Mabam, as the acronym is in Hebrew, and also some of the key features of that campaign and what it means for where we stand now. The campaign between the wars has been a carefully managed uh, Israeli operation that for all intents and purposes, began soon after the Syrian conflict started in 2012. There, there are certain key uh, time periods throughout uh, that campaign in which we've seen a gradual escalation of Israeli activities inside of Syria to prevent Iran from transferring weapons to Lebanese Hezbollah, to prevent Iran and its proxy network from creating a forward operating base from Syria with which to strike Israel. And where we stand now with a question as to how far Israel may widen the aperture of its campaign. It's, it's important to point out that the campaign between the, it's important to point out that the campaign between the wars began in, really began to heat up in 2013. In 2013, uh, Major General Amir Eshel, at the time the IDF's Air Force Chief, actually previewed Israeli thinking on the campaign between the wars. He said, Israel is fighting a campaign between the wars, and Israel is doing its utmost to keep our efforts beneath the level at which war breaks out. Certain key features of the Israeli campaign as it developed were to attack and neutralize potential threats to Israel proactively and before these threats mass on Israel's border, to deter Iran and its proxy network indefinitely in order to postpone a larger conflict with Iran, to set the conditions for Israel to win a war with Iran and its proxies if a war breaks out by treating Iran's military infrastructure, both in terms of weapons capabilities and its personnel and proxy fighters in Syria. As you can see from the timeline, this has been a long campaign and it has stretched over the better part of a decade. Prior to, 2000, prior to 2017, when the Assad regime, supported by Iran and its proxy network, ended the Battle of Aleppo successfully and captured all of Aleppo, Israeli concerns were mainly uh, focused on using an, a, a carefully managed air campaign to prevent the transfer of advanced weapons from Iran to Lebanese Hezbollah, which includes, includes guided missiles, surface-to-surface -surface missiles, and shore-to-sea missiles, as well as to prevent chemical weapons from being transferred from the Assad regime to Lebanese Hezbollah via the IRGC. After 2017, Israel, Israel's campaign between the wars expanded in order to prevent Iran from building the capability to transfer precision-guided munitions to Lebanese Hezbollah, to develop a, a large proxy force, and to prevent Syria from being a base of attack against Israel. Next slide, please.
One of the key dynamics, there are certain key inflection points in Israel's campaign against uh, Iran in Syria. In June 2013, Lebanese Hezbollah played a key role in capturing the Lebanese-Syrian border city of Qusair, which secured the IRGC's ground lines of communications between Syria and Lebanon. In 2015, on the Syrian side of the Golan, a senior Lebanese Hezbollah operative, Jihad Mugnia, was killed via, the, via Israeli airstrike, which showed that Iran was not only using Syrian territory as a transit zone for weapons to Hezbollah, but was using the Golan as a potential staging ground to apply pressure on Israel. In February 2018, the IRGC demonstrated its capability to launch armed drones from deep inside Syria, in particular, the T-4 airbase run by the Assad regime deep in the Syrian desert in Homs province, which led to a large-scale Israeli response. And in July 2019, we see the expansion of Israeli strikes into Iraq, which were acknowledged actually this year in January by Israel's chief of the general staff, mm -hmm. Avi Kohavi, who said, Israel has carried out actions in Iraq. Iranian weapons are being transferred freely from Iraq. We cannot let it go without addressing it. What this means is that Israel has carefully tried to calibrate its campaign in Syria as a means to deter and a detrite the IRGC, its proxy network. However, there are questions moving forward as to how long that can be maintained. Next slide, please. In sum total, Israel has carried out over, over uh, 1,000 strikes, uh, over 200 strikes against 1,000 targets, and to this point has not suffered any killed in action. The result of that has been a slow burn in approach and to try to remove Iran from its entrenchment in Syria and to maintain the threshold of conflict below war. Thank you, on to Kaylee. So with that, the first lesson to learn from the Maban campaign that Israel conducted over the past few years and continues to conduct is to focus on clearly defined and limited objectives as Nick outlined in his introduction of this campaign, it was designed to achieve a discrete purpose as part of Israel's overall strategy vis-a-vis -vis Iran. So this campaign was intended to roll back Iran's ability to directly threaten Israel through proxy networks and weapons transfers into and via Syrian territory, with a particular focus on inhibiting Iran's transfer of precision-guided munitions into Syria and Lebanon. And this clear objective with this, Israel was able to send very clear signals to those actors involved in Syria at the time without escalating the situation into a larger scale conflict. So it became very clear to Iran, Russia, as well as the Assad regime that Israel's targeting would be highly limited and narrowly focused um, in such that it was tied to these discrete objectives, lowering the risk of escalation into full-out war. And this lesson is one that can be easily and should be applied to American objectives vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Currently, American objectives are quite broad in their aim to simply eliminate or reduce Iranian influence in Iraq and Syria writ large. A more narrow objective associated with a campaign conception, for example, deterring Shia militia attacks against US forces in Iraq, or deterring mine attacks against international oil shipping, or even deterring missile attacks against Saudi oil infrastructure, these more narrow concepts of operation would meet the need to send very clear signals to Iran and other actors in the region without escalating the situation into further conflict. So adopting this lesson would be a key first step for the US and would allow the United States to adopt some of the other lessons that we'll discuss further on in this presentation. So with that, let's move on to lesson two. Um, lesson two uh, basically emphasizes intelligence and military superiority. And the Israelis are very clear about this. Um, you know, in Syria, the Israelis have a huge operational advantage over Iran because they've been operating in Syria 
basically since 1948 in one form or another, uh, and are right on the border, whereas Iran is a few hundred miles removed and frankly hasn't been as involved in Syria until the last few years. Um, you know, there's a relationship has already been there, but the military role that Iran played in Syria dramatically expanded, especially after 2011 and the start of the civil war. Um, and so for the Israelis, they have such an in-depth level of intelligence that for every single strike that they conduct, they go through a very long list of targets and how every single actor inside Syria might respond. Um, and by doing that, oftentimes we really think things through, what kind of strike will work? Does it have to be public? Can it be, can it be quiet? All these things go into that factoring in um, how your adversary might respond in the political reality. It doesn't mean that they get it always right, but that type of process, I think, limits risk. I mean, there are some examples where they really haven't gotten it right. Um, most notably when uh, inadvertently had a shoot down of a, um, of a Russian airplane as part of, you know, by uh, Syrian air defenses after an Israeli incursion. But this does at least reduce the risk. Um, and on top of that, um, Israel's military superiority has meant that when Iran has tried to retaliate against Israel, for example, by sending drones into uh, from Syria into Israel, um, those have been shot down. They failed to have a meaningful effect. Um, you know, the U.S. is also perfectly capable of establishing this type of military and intelligence superiority um, in various arenas. Um, but, you know, the reality is it's very expensive, you know, for a global superpower to do that everywhere in the world or to do that in any one place and to put the level of resources necessary. For the Israelis, it's pretty straightforward. They have three or four key arenas, and this is one of them, and so they've put the necessary resources behind it. Um, we have to ask ourselves when we're countering Iran, uh, you know, where, where are the arenas where it's worth actually doing this as a global superpower, or where are we better off where we don't have this type of superiority, so we should not be engaging in these types of operations. So now on back to Kaylee. The third lesson is that in conducting such a campaign, Israel and, and any other country who tries to conduct a similar campaign must possess a willingness to take calculated risks. So American policymakers in the past, uh, for many presidents, have fall, fallen into a trap looking at potential military activities as having a binary risk, either kind of falling into all-out conflict or taking such conservative action that there's no conflict or confrontation at all. Simultaneously, one president after another has also argued that in the Middle East, it's in the U.S. interest to counter Iran, but rarely have we done so um, in a military fashion, mostly out of the fear of triggering an all-out war. So for years, there were no serious U.S. responses to Iranian actions, uh, even just looking over the course of the past year to strikes at Americans in Iraq, uh, you know, mining attacks on ships in the Gulf of Oman, and the missile strikes on Saudi oil infrastructure, notably Abqaiq and Koray. Instead, the Americans were deterred from responding to those attacks out of concerns that that would cause an outsized Iranian response. And when the United States finally did respond, uh, it took that risk too far, um, going way over the top and ultimately nearly causing a war with the strike on Qasem Soleimani. So while there needs to be a willingness to take risk, that should be more well calibrated to see the spectrum of action that can be taken in the gray zone. So that taking risks does not mean being reckless. So now on to the next lesson. Sure, and so a real key component, maybe the, maybe the most important definitional component in my mind uh, of the Israeli operation, but not the only one, uh, is has been the Israeli public messaging around it. Um, for the most part, many of the strikes have gone unacknowledged um, and are deniable, and that serves the function of not embarrassing the Iranians or forcing them to feel like they have to respond, or the Russians, or the Assad regime, or anybody else. Um, but even uh, as the Israelis do this, they do find ways to drip things into the public domain, uh, whether it's through you know mysteriously stories showing up in Arab newspapers or sometimes images of, you know, bomb or facilities that are producing these types of weapons showing up on the web through a private uh, organization or, or, or an outside analyst. Um, 
both in order to send a signal to the Iranians about what it is they're targeting and what their intentions are, uh, but also to send messages to the world that, you know, they're not just blowing up empty warehouses, like there's a real issue here and they, they have the proof. Um, and so that's been a pretty effective calibration the Israelis have managed to conduct. It's easier for them also because they have a military censor, uh, so that whenever they need to, they can sort of stop the press um, from doing that. Um, you know, for the United States, in contrast, um, the Soleimani strike represents an example where we did the exact opposite. I mean, that's the, this picture of the president speaking after the strike. Um, you know, we tweet an fl American flag right after doing it. Um, we make lots of phone calls to allies and partners in the region and put out very public um, you know, readouts of those, of those discussions. We do all kinds of things that basically make it impossible for the Iranians to not respond to us. Um, you know, so the question is, could we do this, um, not as well as the Israelis, because again, um, you know, we have uh, things, we have a much more robust, I think we have a more robust free press, frankly, that, that's not going to be censored. Um, and that's fine. Um, but there have been examples where the U.S. conducted these types of operations against non-state actors, whether it's countering al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in, Ye in Yemen or countering al-Qaeda in, in Pakistan, where there was this kind of deniable and yet kind of known campaign going on. And I think you could see something similar here. It's, it'd be a much smarter way, I think, to try to counter Iran without unnecessarily provoking conflict. So now back to the next lesson. Another key element of Israel, Israel's signaling as part of this campaign was purposely limiting adversary and civilian casualties. So Israel has gone out of its way in some strikes, uh, even purposely missing with the first shot in order to let any operatives who were you know, there to operate the military infrastructure to scatter out um, before then destroying the infrastructure itself. And in doing this, they have lessened the need for Iran or any Iranian or associated forces uh, to then respond to this strike. In contrast, uh, we saw this past December when the United States responded um, to escalation with Iran. It launched, you know, five strikes against Kitab Hezbollah um, sites uh, in Iraq and Syria, which resulted in 25 fighters who were killed. And this was seen by Iran and associated forces as a significant escalation um, in response to the death of only one U.S. contractor the previous day. So instead of sending a strong deterrence signal, this operation led an escalation in the form of the attack on the U.S. Embassy, which led to the American response of killing Qasem Soleimani, and then nearly brought the U.S. and Iran into a conflict in the days that followed. The United States military has the capability to limit and should try to limit casualties when conducting strikes in the gray zone in an effort to prevent such an escalation from happening. And part of the US effort to do this will have to involve basing its analysis as Israel does uh, and more contextual information on a given target um, and being very purposeful in that signaling uh, to Iran and other forces. So with that, let's go to the next lesson. Um, all right, another thing that the Israelis did that was pretty interesting, um, you know, as the United States, traditionally, the way we think of military planning uh, is first identify the end state and then work backwards from there uh, to conduct your campaign. Um, the Israelis really did not do that in this case, and I think that this might be a lesson for us to think about um, as we conduct both this type of gray zone uh, campaign against Iran, but also if we were to conduct gray zone campaigns against Russia, China, others, um, as you're sort of thinking about this slow edging into the gray zone and testing your adversaries' um, reactions. What the Israelis basically did is, you know, they started with a forward planning process of, we're going to try, you know, one strike or two strikes and do it very carefully with the most risk-averse target and see how all the different actors respond. And then based on that, and the response, we're going to iterate and come back and improve. And if we got no response, we're going to try to maybe push a little bit forward further to try to achieve more of our objectives and back and forth in this iterative process, a bit like boiling, a, you know, the classic boiling of a frog. Um, and, you know, I think this is something um, that worked very well for them. And it also gets you out of the, the box of being afraid of 
not doing you know anything for fear of it of either triggering the the worst case outcome at the very end or not knowing exactly 100% where it's going you have to be able to willing to say we're going to achieve some limited small objectives along the way which is generally a more of an israeli mentality than an american mentality um you know and so i think this is something we're perfectly capable of doing um as the united states if we you know just actively think about it that way and have done in in some cases especially in the middle of active conflict um the isis campaign being a good example where we kind of you know through testing stumbled into an approach at least that worked with uh, you know supporting local kurdish partners um and also you know, the question also becomes the united states again as a global superpower uh we sometimes play a longer game so this approach doesn't necessarily make as much sense for us in every example uh as a sort of smaller player that's that's got a lot of problems on all of its borders but it's something for our military planners to definitely consider you know as they look at um you know ways to counter iran and and, and similar conflicts um so that's it for lesson 6 back over to kaylee so for lesson 7 the penultimate lesson um one of the more interesting things about these uh, israelis mabam operation um is the fact that it was taking place in Syria where there were so many uh actors involved and therefore it would appear that the risk of escalation um would be even higher so the israelis the israelis obviously were not conducting this operation in a vacuum but instead had to you know conduct pursue aggressive diplomacy in order to help maintain a permissible political environment by which they could continue to have the space of to maneuver and to conduct this campaign and to do so um with the discrete approach that they had and so israel notably established a military to military deconfliction line with russians and this diplomacy with russia started at the very high level um between uh prime minister benjamin netanyahu and president vladimir putin of russia who met roughly 12 times uh, over the past 3 years while this campaign was ongoing and that high level diplomacy then trickled down to more of the operational level so that while there were some instances um of mistakes and and russian interference that mainly israel was able to maintain this freedom to operate So when thinking about US operations in the region especially to counter Iran it's important for Americans and US forces to also pursue rigorous diplomacy with local players who impact our space to maneuver. And so in this case the Russians almost might be best equated to the Iraq government and engaging with diplomacy with them. The Russians did not want to end up in the middle of an Iran-Israel conflict. So Israel was actually to leverage that um into this deescalation and to manage the situation similarly the iraqi government wants no part of a us iran um large scale confrontation they're okay with the us military presence as long as it's not fueling that conflict and putting iraqis at risk or embarrassing them with their people so a smart diplomatic strategy for the united states would be constant engagement with the iraqis to defuse this problem instead of striking targets or ending up in this escalation ladders um without notifying the iraqis or with having a a coins a complementary diplomacy um ongoing in that open conversation so overall one of the main takeaways because this can be applied with iraq but also with some of the United States Gulf partners in the region is to consult with allies first before making public statements about Iran's actions to ensure coordinated messaging as well as possible military responses. And with that, let's go to Alon for the final lesson. Sure, and this final lesson also gets it at least at a question I saw pop up in the Q&A, even though I'm not supposed to be the manager of the Q&A uh, from Norm Rule about like the reality that this is more tactical and not necessarily strategic in achieving its objectives. And I think that needs to be something that we keep in mind throughout. The verdict on this entire campaign is still very much out. Um, you know, it's it has definitely slowed uh Iran's ability to um uh put weapons and and sophisticated weaponry into Syria. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but the Iranians have pivoted to try and do other things, put more weapons into Iraq or into Lebanon. which are more complicated for Israel to strike at. You know, it's taken a more patient approach in Syria, for example, and build out stronger relationships with Shia militias there that over time they can try to 
um, you know, put these weapons in later. And the reality is that, you know, there is an element to this, which is simply mowing the lawn, uh, as, as the, the term has sometimes been used. So um, I think that we need to be realistic about these types of expectations. They don't replace, you know, a broader U.S. strategy towards Iran, uh, which in my view would need to involve, you know, diplomatic negotiation, engagement, but also pushback and pressure on areas where we disagree. Um, and um, so this can't be the solution. Um, but, you know, if you use it smart and you use it careful, um, and you use it the way the Israelis have used it um, in situations where it makes sense, um, it can be a useful tool, all right? It can't be a strategy, but it can be a tool uh, that can be wielded more effectively um, than the United States has wielded it in the past, um, where we've either tried to wield it as a hammer or just like taken it off the board altogether, um, both of which don't necessarily work. Um, so, with that, uh, why don't we just go to the last, the last slide um, on just some conclusions about what this, you know, just thinking about applying some of these lessons to the United States, a couple of wrap up words, um, after which we'll turn to uh, Sarit Zahavi for a couple of minutes and then, and then keep getting your, I see a long list of questions already coming in. So I think we'll have a great conversation. Um, you know, I, I think for me, the bottom line with all of this um, is a couple of things like one, um, what the Israeli campaign does demonstrate is that there's more freedom of action than maybe we've thought about um, if we get more creative. I mean, you know, even if you just compare, you know, the types of options that the Pentagon put in front of the president in 2013 after the, um, you know, really the early years of the, of the Syrian civil war, um, you know, where everything was being presented as, you know, 70,000 troops and no-fly zones and very broad options, um, well, you know, or you do nothing. Um, like, there is more space in there if you're creative um, in these types of situations um, where you can avoid conflict but try to achieve your objective. So I think that's one lesson is not to just always go to, you know, the black or white. Um, you know, but the other question for the U.S. is, like, is any president going to ever really be willing to take the risks? Uh, associated with this. I mean, these ideas are not necessarily brand new. Uh, a lot of them have been executed at various times by the United States. Mostly they aren't executed by the United States. And oftentimes when these options are put in front of American presidents, uh, they just say, no, nah, this is not worth it. It's too risky. I, I don't necessarily want to see where it goes. Um, you know, and so it might just be that, you know, we're not necessarily primed to conduct this kind of campaign. Um, and also is a question institutionally, you know, what kind of authorities associated with some of these strikes, um, where I think there does need to be both a lot of clarity and um, a lot of transparency, but at the same time, you know, some of this does need to be covert. That's complicated to do, um, you know, a much more vigorous press, um, you know, and also, you know, again, the Israelis, part of the reason they've been able to do this is their very, very deep knowledge of this arena, you know, we don't, as a global superpower that's further stretched, we don't have sometimes that same level of knowledge or necessarily we can always develop it. We have the resources to do it, but is it really worth it to us? Um, so I really think the bottom line of all of this is there are definitely lessons to learn. It's an interesting campaign. It's worth studying further. It's worth the US military in particular, taking more time to study it and look at some of the conclusions and the intelligence community that have come out of this campaign. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's not just like a cut and paste onto the United States. Um, we are different. Um, and in, some, in many cases, this won't necessarily make as much sense for us. And so we need to think through that as well, as opposed to just saying, well, the Israelis did it and so that we can do it and it makes sense for us. Um, so maybe I'll stop there. Um, and maybe if Sarit is on the line, we can turn to her um, you know, for, for an initial uh, response from an Israeli perspective as somebody who, you know, has spent a lot of time studying uh, this, um, you know, this conflict and, and sort of these operations. Hi. Uh, for me, it's good afternoon. Uh, I'll just open it for video. How do I do that? Or you can open it for video for me. Uh, Hi. 
I'm not sure you're going to be able to open it for video, Sarit. Why don't you go okay. ahead? I think people can hear okay. you. Yes. Sure, no problem. So first, as an Israeli, I must uh, emphasize that we don't have the option uh, to do nothing. And that's why we had to develop this gray zone into a strategy much more than just a tactic because it's either war, which is a bad option for us, it will affect our lives deeply, or doing nothing. And we had to develop something in between. A second note is that I agree that in most cases, uh, the Mabam uh, or the Gray Zone campaign will not achieve uh, dealing with strategic goals such as, I don't know, defeating Iran, changing the regime, whatever. But I can think of one example that I can consider it Mabam, which is the Israeli attack against uh, the nuclear uh, capabilities of Syria in 2007. And again, in this uh, attack, uh, we used the ambiguity policy and actually we admitted uh, attacking the, uh, this place only uh, 10 years later. Uh, and it didn't take us into war thanks to this ambiguity policy. So the ambiguity policy is very important. It enables us sometimes even to gain strategic uh, goals by this uh, grain zone campaign, but it's not an ideology. And this is very important to remember because uh, you mentioned that there was a debate in Israel whether uh, we must continue the non-acknowledgement policy and not admitting that we are doing anything in Syria, or whether we should a little bit uh, talk about it like our uh, leaders did actually uh, since 2019. I think the ambiguity policy is a tool and we should use it when it's necessary. And we can also uh, do other stuff when it's necessary for deterrence, because sometimes it's important to come and say, yes, we had done that uh, and it creates much more deterrence. We, we can take the risk there if, if I'm using your words about calculated risks. As for the issue of the media, I wouldn't give too much credit to the military censorship in Israel because they only can uh, censor Israeli media and eventually everything goes out, out by uh, the media outside of Israel. In today's reality, everything goes out in social media. So uh, I think that we understood that we cannot control the media, but we can influence the media. And this is what was done, done here. And it was done like, uh, the same way it is done with the kinetic, the kinetic attacks, meaning that we used intelligence, we used initiative and creativity, and we used targeting specific audiences or specific information that was designed uh, for that. I think that the key word when we speak about gray zone is cons consistency. A uh, very difficult word to pronounce for Israelis. Uh, which is sometimes cons consistency is needed for more than one term of presidency. Uh, this consistency will enable creating red lines, creativity, uh, flexibility, as all of these lessons that you actually uh, talked about, uh, containment of a crisis when things are not going exactly the way we wanted, but still you need to be very patient when you look, you look at the achievements of this gray zone campaign. You don't, sometimes you don't, you're not aware of the achievements the day after, only years later. If I'm looking at what United States can do, I must say that the United States can um, adopt uh, the gray zone campaign on a much wider uh, area. We were looking at Syria. You should look at Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. You should take all of these in consideration because anything you would do, uh, Iran may retaliate in Saudi Arabia. And I'm not sure that the Iranian attack against Saudi Arabia, all infrastructure was not actually a retaliation about something that we don't know of. Uh, so, you know, if I'm trying to look at the differences between Israel and the United States, Israel is a player 
on the playground. We are part of the conflict. We cannot choose to get out of the conflict whenever we want. The United States is an external player, and that's why it must uh, coordinate this pressure diplomacy that you've mentioned must be done with many, many players in the scene. One word about Suleimani. Eventually, there was no war. So if there was no war, maybe this was also a calculated risk. Uh, and when you take calculated, calculated risks, you sometimes uh, need to be prepared for casualties. And I'm saying prepared, not willing. I'm using a different verb because when you are prepared, uh, you have better chances to avoid casualties. Uh, the best example is what happened here last September when Hezbollah launched uh, anti-tank missiles to IDF vehicles and positions, and nobody got hurt. And it was not only thanks for luck. Uh, we were very much prepared to pull out the soldiers very quickly from the areas that were about to be attacked. Um, one last thing, and I think it is connected to what we are experiencing today, which is the COVID-19. Iran is also having a gray zone campaign. And one of the key elements in the gray zone campaign of Iran is the civilian educational effort. Iran is working very hard to gain support and uh, to gain influence in Lebanon, in Iraq, and in Syria by civilian means, uh, medical assistance, educational uh, systems. And we see this clearly when we look at Lebanon with what's going on with Hezbollah and the campaign against the, the COVID-19. I think that this is something the United States can definitely do much better than Israel. Uh, re reinforcing uh, the civilian systems in those countries that will create a, a counter a product to the Iranian systems uh, by supplying completely civilian uh, services or equipment uh, to fight the COVID-19. This crisis is going to be long enough to create influence uh, on this level. And uh, one last sentence, uh, as you mentioned, we are based in the North, our government center is based in the North. We are uh, following what is happening on our borders. Uh, next month, we are going uh, to have a webinar about our report about the Golan file and the Iranian proxies uh, in Syria next to our border. So thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you, Sarit. Um, and, uh... Yeah, and I think uh, I mean, so why don't we open it up to uh, why don't we open it up to questions, Kaylee? I'll hand it back to you. Great, we have a lot of really good questions, and we'll try to get to as many as possible. Um, I think I'll start out with a couple that I've bucketed together on digging down into those differences between you know what Israel Israel can do and what the United States can do. So really, what is applicable? Um, so two questions on that front. First, from Mitchell Hopberg, we have, is there a specific, particular aspects of the configuration of Israel's national security bureaucracy and de decision-making process um, that makes it difficult for the United States to replicate certain elements of this campaign? So maybe speaking to some specific examples there. And then another question from Thomas Warwick, more to the fundamental differences that potentially exist between U.S. and Israel military goals vis-a-vis -vis Iran. So I think Normal also brought this up in the questions, which is there's, you know, the Mabam campaign was focused on largely degrading capabilities. The U.S. seems to be focused more on like deterring attacks against personnel. So do those differences in goals mean that some of the lessons cannot be so directly applied? Back to you guys for those questions. Well, Nick, maybe I can start on the Israeli, uh, you know, um, sort of bureaucratic and mention a little bit on, on Hezbollah and then you can also hop in if you want. Um, on uh, the Israeli bureaucracy question, I mean, the first thing is it, the Israelis are smaller and more nimble as a result. Like we are a much bigger national security bureaucracy. Um, and there has been, given the sensitivity, I mean, there has been a certain level of micromanagement at pretty low levels on pretty much every strike has been very thoroughly reviewed. Um, 
We also have the capacity to do that, and we do that, for example. We did that around the not just the Soleimani strike, but the strikes that came before, the five on Kitab Hezbollah. Um, you know, but that starts to suck up like massive amounts of senior leader um, bandwidth if you're a global superpower focusing that narrowly on that question. So that's, I think, part of the question. The other is, again, goes back to how much in terms of Intel resources uh, do we really want to put um, towards this question. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I think that's enough, and military resources do we really want to put towards this question. I think Sarit made this point, like Israel had, has no choice but to deal with the players it has in the neighborhood. We have you know, many more options. Um, and so I think those are, to me, the two biggest ones. And then in terms of the differences between trying to deter um, Iran, um, deter versus uh, degrade. I mean, there's a fair dose of deterrence also going on in the Israeli campaign, I would say. They're trying to degrade, but they're also trying through de degrading, trying to send a message about deterrence. I mean, and frankly, we have in the past had moments when we've done a pretty good job of deterring. I think about an example of, you know, Iran moving IRAMs into, the, into Iraq in 2011 and the American response there, which was much more targeted um, and sent, I think, the right message and, and that message got through to the Iranians. So I'm not sure that the difference between uh, deterrence, deter and degrade uh, means fundamentally different campaigns. I actually think they can be somewhat, somewhat similar. Um, Nick, I don't know if you want to hop on any, any other responses on that. Well, thank you, Lon. Thank you for the questions. I agree with you that the line between deterrence and defense at times or degradation can, uh, can be uh, blurred. What we've observed over sort of the long haul of this campaign is that in most of their sort of, you have to sort of divide it into sort of two or three theaters now, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. In Lebanon, there's been much more of a deterrence factor, although you can make the argument that the IDF's campaign to remove uh, the attack tunnels that Hezbollah and the IRGC had been building from which to stage an invasion of the Galilee was a form of defense. Whereas in Syria, and in Syria, uh, there, it has been much more of an active defense, and the target packages also sort of determine where you are on the de deterrence or defense uh, we'll say rubric, uh, when you're actively targeting weapons caches, you're actively targeting cross-border tunnels, when you're targeting commanders who are known for uh, establishing kinetic lines of effort, that's more of an act of defense. But when you are going after more high-level targets, intelligence sites, logistics sites, um, depots, that can be a form of deterrence. And I think there's been, there's been an oscillation throughout the campaign between the wars, between active defense and attempts at deterrence. And deterrence can, and defend, deterrence can also be the political line of effort, speaking to gray zone conflicts. And you see uh, one parallel between the US effort in Iraq, for example, and the Israeli effort in Syria is that the Israelis have utilized a parallel diplomatic and political line of effort via Russia to try to manage and deter Iran's entrenchment and activities in Syria, whereas the United States is also engaged in a parallel political effort to try to deter threats against it. Great. And this all leads well into the next bucket of questions that I see from our uh, participants, um, which go more to how a narrow campaign like this, if the U.S. were to replicate one, fits into a larger overall U.S.-Iran strategy. So in that end, I know that Nick mentioned this, and Alani mentioned this as well in the presentation, that, you know, the bomb campaign has not yet ended, and so the how it ends and to the degree, degree to which it is successfully contributing to an overall Israel-Iran strategy is a little bit on um, the more wishy-washy side. So in the context of a U.S. strategy vis-a-vis -vis Iran, do we end up in sort of a forever war, endless, you know, series of operations like this? Um, and then how does that impact potential space for re-engaging Iran diplomatically 
um, and going back to the negotiating table as the current administration or our next administration seems to be interested in doing. Um, well, here, let me let me try on both of those. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, those came from Ellie Garamaya and, and Norm and then some yeah. others as well. Yes. Others, um, questions, yes. So very good questions. And I'm really glad with the, the, the types of really good questions and people we're getting on this discussion. Um, so uh, look, my take is um, I'm not advocating, I wouldn't advocate right now in the current environment for the US to come out guns blazing with a series of strikes, uh, you know, in a new administration, for example. I would argue for re-engagement and diplomacy, but also for a clear message to come with that diplomacy that says like, you know, and we're going to de-escalate and you're going to stop doing what you're doing in Iraq. Um, and then if actions like that continue in Iraq, um, then I think the U.S. has space uh, to respond. Um, you know, um, and with this type of action to also send a message. And we've done that in the past, um, you know, and I think the Israelis are capable, you know, have shown that you're, they're capable, that, that there, while there is risk there, it's also Iran won't automatically respond. Um, and, you know, in the past, it hasn't necessarily stopped all dialogue and communication. I would prefer for it all to stop um, on both sides. Um, but if it's not going to stop, I think that we have space to simultaneously be negotiating with Iran and when necessary, like using, you know, these types of tools in a limited way. Um, I also don't think we're necessarily looking at a forever war. Like Israel might be looking at a forever war on its border because it lives there, right? It has no choice, as Sarit said. Um, but for the U.S., um, I don't think we're looking at a forever war, partially because I think we have a much more powerful deterrent capability when we use it. Like, Iranians really don't want to get into a direct conflict with us. Um, they know that, you know, when the U.S. fights big, like, it, it's just a whole different ballgame. And that's why they spent 40 years developing a strategy that avoids that kind of direct confrontation. Um, and that gives us a fair dose of leverage where one limited strike combined with the right kind of messaging, if Iran crosses a line, um, should be enough in many cases, to deter Iran, at least for a while. You might need to do it every once in a while, but I don't think you're necessarily looking at the same level and types of strikes um, that you get out of, that, that, that Israel has had to conduct. Um, and I probably would not recommend for the United States a campaign that focuses on attriting Iranian capabilities, more a campaign focused on deterring Iranian actions, um, because I think that can be much more limited in scope. Um, and so um, I think those are ways to deal with those questions, but there's legitimate questions because every action has risk associated with it. Um, you know, I mean, Sarit mentioned that Soleimani, well, you didn't end up in a war, well, maybe the risk was worth it. In my view, the risk wasn't worth it, I think, and the way it was done, like, got us very, very close, and I do think that we were at least partially lucky. Um, I don't think Iran wanted to kill Americans with its response when it went after, when it launched uh, all those ballistic missiles. Um, and its missiles turned out to be quite accurate, which is interesting and disturbing at the same time. Um, but, you know, they clearly demonstrated a willingness to at least risk killing Americans and getting into a broader conflict than that. And so, you know, I think we, if our objective was to deter future attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq, like, the the Soleimani strike went way beyond that and if anything I think escalated the situation so not only so I just don't even think it really achieved our objectives either or depending on what those objectives are so um anyway that's that's why I'll leave it I, I guess the bottom line of all that is if you're very limited and you know what you want to accomplish and you pair it with very clear messaging to key players um this doesn't have to end diplomacy or um, lead you into a forever war context. Um, but yeah, there are certainly risks associated with it. Nick, did you have anything to add to those questions? Just very quickly to build off of Elon's point, if we just look at the Syria and theater, um, it can take on, this sort of campaign can take on the features of an, an indefinite campaign because the opponent can continue to unfold its campaign plan. Just look at the Golan, for example. Sadiq mentioned a uh, forthcoming report on the Golan file as an example. 
The Golan is a very interesting example of how Iran has a determined campaign plan to utilize Syrian territory to be able to increase the aperture of its range of attacks in Israel via the Galilee, southern Lebanon, Gaza, and the Golan in Syria. And the types of uh, personnel and resources that Iran has dedicated to the Golan, despite Israeli attempts to prevent it from using the Golan as a springboard for future attacks, demonstrates commitment. It had Jihad, Jihad Mugnia, the son of now formed slain Imad Mugnia, one of Hezbollah's head operatives, who was actually killed by an Israeli strike in January 2015. How did Iran respond? It responded by assigning Ali Dakduk, who was one of the key Iranian-backed Hezbollah network operatives responsible for building its multinational, transnational Hezbollah network of fighters, as well as one of... Uh, the, the real evil men who was able to scale up attacks against U.S. forces using uh, advanced IEDs in Iraq. And they've shown this level of commitment. They've entered the Golan in southern Syria on the social, political, and security space. And so that just demonstrates that this type of campaign is just one tool that you need. There are other tools that you need to apply diplomatic, political, potentially economic, and sanctions in order to deter or, deter or defend consistently against a determined opponent. Because it's not going away in southern Syria for the Israelis. And for the United States and the broader region, there'll have to be multiple lines of effort simultaneously. This isn't just the line of effort you can pursue. So with an eye on time, I'll ask a final round of questions, then I turn it to you guys to answer and also provide any closing remarks or points you'd like to make. Um, this is kind of combining themes from questions from Zor Akrami, Russ Hoyle, and even a second question from Ali Garanmaya. Um, you know, one of the things that we referenced in our presentation was kind of the applicability of some of these lessons to U.S. actions in Iraq. So if we could pull that thread a little bit more about how this would translate into a campaign in a place like Iraq, where the U.S. does have, you know, maybe more interest to satisfy that third party than Israel does with the Assad regime in Syria, um, and some of the fallout that we've already seen from U.S. actions there, kind of what are the most important lessons to implement there, and how could the U.S. implement them? Sure. Um, so I, I think that the a few things, um, I mean, really a number of the lessons in there that I would apply is like, one, the messaging, um, the very loud and proud responses um, that we've conducted in Iraq only embarrass the Iraqi government, put it in a very difficult position, um, and you know, provoke the Iranians to keep escalating as opposed to, you know, quiet, you know, under the radar strikes with private messages to the Iranians. And you don't have to tell the Iraqis in advance you're doing it, but you do have to, or tell them specific targets and things you're doing because I get the challenge, the intelligence challenges there, but you can do more in that space to coordinate with them and at least, you know, warn them some. Again, remove, reduce, you're not going to reduce some of the Iraqi backlash, but you're going to manage it just like you can't fully reduce, the Israelis can't fully reduce the Russian backlash sometimes, especially when things go bad, um, but they have been able to reduce it. Um, so I think that's one key, both, both the messaging and the diplomacy might be two of the most important things. And then also, I'll just give you another example, um, you know, that comes back to me, you know, back in early, in late, in, in late December, one American contractor was killed and we responded with strikes that killed 25 KH fighters. Um, that inevitably was gonna trigger a response, right? From, from KH, which involved, you know, storming of the American embassy, which then triggered killing Soleimani, which then, then triggered the Iranian response. Um, you know, in some ways the biggest mistake in all of that was the initial response on those five facilities um, you know, if you have enough intelligence and you're accurate enough with what you do, um, you know, you don't need, like, you need to be proportionate in your response. Uh, and in that case, we weren't. Um, and that's part of what triggered the escalation. So, again, I think um, there are ways to deter, you know, Iranian proxies in Iraq 
without both going against our fundamental objectives of keeping a strong relationship with the Iraqi government um, and not also unnecessarily risking escalation that um, that's not in our interest and frankly not in Iran's interest or Iraq's interest or anybody else. So those are just some of the lessons, but I almost think you can take every one of the lessons of the campaign and apply it right now in the report and apply it right now to what is happening in Iraq and how maybe and ask yourself based on this, what should the US be doing in Iraq? Nick, any final remarks? Uh, to build off what Elon said, really you need to emphasize that it isn't completely in the hands of either actor, in the United States and Iraq, in Israel with Syria. You do require active political and diplomatic engagement. The Israelis depend on Russia ultimately to be able to manage the threat from Iran coming from Syria. The United States ultimately is dependent on a partnership with the Iraqi government and elements within Iraqi society that want to have a more balanced Iraq between multiple different actors and not just a unilateral actor in Iran. And we will all have to follow closely Secretary Pompeo's um, effort for strategic dialogue because Iran and its proxies have an active multi-pronged line of effort, both in terms of kinetic and political pressure to expel the U.S. from Iraq. And if the strategic dialogue does not work, there are, it is uncertain if the U.S. will be able to remain in Iraq in the long term. Well, on that uh, positive note, um, and an eye that we went a couple of minutes over time, want to thank everyone for joining us for this session today. Please do take a look at the entire report, which is now live on the CNES website. Um, great questions, and we got to most of them, I believe. So thank you, everyone, so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.